Back again to BadQuaker.com podcast, where liberty is our vi- is our mission. And uh, today is Thursday. Well, actually, this is Wednesday, but this podcast is for Thursday, December 20th, 2012. It's podcast number 251. My name is Ben Stone, and with me today is David McElroy. And uh, David, ha- and that's in his website, is uh, davidmcelroy.org. And uh, David... Um, is a writer and a filmmaker, and back in 2005, he did the movie, uh, it's about a 10-minute movie, 10 and a half minutes, it's called We're the Government and You're Not, and it's really funny, and it's uh, it's fun to watch, it's good to watch, and uh, it's had over 300,000 views, and it's as fresh today as it was when it was filmed. Uh, David, welcome to BadQuaker.com podcast. Thanks, Ben, it's great to talk to you. I'm really glad you uh, agreed to come on with me, it's, it's good to talk to you. And uh, I, and I was serious about that movie. I really enjoyed that. I couldn't believe I hadn't found that already. Well, well, thanks. I really appreciate it. Um, to, to be honest, it was not made for for online use, and so it's probably about twice as long as I would make it if I were making it for online. It was really made for film festivals, so uh, it, it works better in a theater. But you know, I think it works pretty well online, and it has had some notoriety as well. <clears throat> Uh, well, I won a few awards at uh, the 20 film festivals it was at, and I know that um, after it went online, uh, I know Neil Bortz talked about it and put it on his website, and I can't remember where else, uh, but a, a number of libertarian groups have shown it. But um, yeah, that was my 15 minutes of fame about seven or eight years ago. Now, uh, at the time that you filmed that, were you more, let's see, how do we put this, uh, uh, were you more libertarian-leaning then and than you are today, or were you more towards the anarchical side today than then? I, I would call myself an anarchist, even though, uh, today, uh, even though I don't really like to use the word simply because so many people misunderstand what it means. Back then, I would have still described myself as as a libertarian. Um, like a lot of the people I know, I've gone through a real transition over the years. I started out as a garden variety conservative. Um, I was a Republican in the South when uh, the Republicans in the county could have met in a phone booth. And, um, and then when I was about 29 or 30, I became a libertarian, got involved with the Alabama Libertarian Party. Became vice chair and then ended up deciding that the LP was never going to achieve anything, uh, partly because of personality quirks of typical libertarians and partly because of the, stru- the structure of the two-party system. So um, along with a, a few other people I knew, we decided, as a lot of people did, that we were going to become Republicans and make the Republican Party more libertarian. And that's where I was for a number of years, and I, I was still pretty much there when I made uh, my short film, but I, I was already moving in the anarchist direction. 
I was just kind of, I wasn't ready to fully call myself that yet, but I, I was really getting there. I think that's the story of a lot of people. They, uh, you know, even, even those coming from the left, uh, it, it's still kind of the same progression. You have these ideas and hopes and then the, the more you look at the, the structure of American politics, and I assume it's similar overseas, but the more you look at uh, the structure of American politics, the more you realize it's not really, um, it's not really what it appears to be. It's more of a, of a game where all the rules are set by a very small group of people. Exactly. I, I ended up coming to, the, to the, 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 the anarchist position really by two different two different routes, uh, kind of moving on parallel tracks. One of them was the moral track. Um, and I mean, I know, you know, the arguments as well as I do, so I don't need to make them for you, but, but, but the idea that, that no majority has the right to make the decisions for everybody else. So that was one track. And the other track I was moving down was I was working in politics at the time as a political consultant and I was seeing just how screwed up the system was. And so I just realized that pragmatically it couldn't work even if I could ignore the morality. I think you're drawing a really important distinction there, too, because a lot of people, um, you know, a lot of people come to this position through uh, through strictly a moral, um, the, the moral path where they've decided that, you know, they look at things and they realize that any system based on aggression, like you said, we all we all know the the whole story. But any system based on aggression is uh, is wrong. It's evil, and um, and you shouldn't support it. You shouldn't be involved in it. You shouldn't uh, prop it up. And so that that path takes uh, a lot of people take that path in understanding this process, and then they come to the uh, however we want to terminology, you know, whatever terminology we want to use. Uh, we come to this anarcho position, but to be able to see it as both pragmatic and um, and philosophical and morally all at the same time, uh, and have those all converge in one place, I think it's uh, it's something that a person once they start to see this, they can't unsee it. They can't back up on that path. Right. Well, for me, it's a relief if I. If I believe that morally it was wrong, but I, I felt as though, well, pragmatically, yeah, we could do this, but it's just wrong to do it. There would be a part of me that would be tempted to say, well, you know what? That would be better than what we have now. And But since I, both, since, since I have decided that pragmatically it won't work, that gives me permission to follow what I know is right, if that makes sense. Yeah, perfectly, perfectly makes sense. And um, and uh, your kind of like your tagline on your website is that you're a recovering political prostitute, and what that actually is referring to is that you were a political consultant for some time. So you really had the inside scoop on how these things function and how that there's just no possible way for a third party to get in with any efficiency or with any you know to really make any kind of impact. Right. To be honest, when I first got into um, working in politics about 20 years ago, I was I was still pretty idealistic about it. Um, I still believed that we could get out there and change the world uh, through politics. And uh, it was I mean, looking back at it, I can't believe I was ever that naive. Um, the, the very first race that I had anything to do with, 
was with a libertarian candidate running in a, a nonpartisan race. He, he's a physician here in Birmingham, and so we, we had the money to run a decent race, um, and we ran a race. But Ben, let me tell you, we talked about nothing but the issues. We, we put out white papers, and, and the advertising that we did was all about issues. It was very dense. And he got about 3% of the vote. I mean, I mean absolute disaster. The se- we took the same candidate two years later after we realized that that was not the way to win races. And we, we took him back as a candidate for city council. This time, we didn't talk about the issues at all. We said nothing about the issues. We basically just said, hey, I'm a nice guy. Vote for me. And he won. Wow. So, you know, people are so easily manipulated that it's just amazing. Oh, it, it, I'm trying to think how to explain eh. – Trying to think how, how how to respond to that. It's amazing on the one hand, and I'm sure it is to people outside of the business, and I'm sure at one time I felt the same way, but it's not as amazing to me because I've done it so many times. Politics – or campaigns at least. Let me be specific and say campaigns. Campaigns are not about changing people's minds. What campaigns are about is about – finding out what people already believe, and then manipulating what they believe about the candidate. So it's not as much that you are manipulating what what they what, – I mean, what issues they think are, are important. I mean, that can happen occasionally, but, but more – far more often, it's about simply doing research to find out what they want to hear, what they don't want to hear – and then attaching things that they don't want to hear to the opposition, attaching things that they do want to hear to you. Without getting too specific, uh, back prior to the election last November, um, we were my, – my family and I were, move, were going back and forth between uh, eastern Ohio and eastern Kentucky, West Virginia area, and uh, western Ohio – uh, we were going back and forth just every couple of weeks. We had a, a family situation with a, an elderly, a very ill uh, family member. And so we were seeing uh, right in the heart of the of the campaign uh, spending um, right at the end of October, we were seeing advertisements for the exact same Ohio candidates in western Ohio. And then we would go to eastern Ohio and the advertisements that were coming out of actually a West Virginia television station, but they were aiming at Appalachian, Eastern Ohio. Dealing with the same candidate, you would think if it wasn't for the name being the same, <laughs> you would think it was opposite party. Exactly. The, the way they were portraying him. Exactly. <laughs> this is Politics is about the art of telling people what they want to hear. That, that just – I mean I knew that they did that kind of thing. But the blatancy of it, it was like, do the, you know, these people don't go visit relatives or anything? Well, you know, even, even if a few people notice it, so what, uh, as far as the campaigns are concerned? As far as the campaigns are concerned, the people who they want to hear it are going to hear it. Now, one thing, let me mention this. A lot of people don't understand about campaigns, and, and this is very interesting. Once you get to a general election and you have a Republican on one side, a Democrat on the other, most – People who are going to vote already know who they're going to vote for. So a campaign, uh, the, the election is not really about all of the electorate. Uh, 
Let's say 40% of the people already know they're going to vote for the Democrat. 40% know they're already going to vote for the Republican. And I'm just pulling these numbers out of the air. It could be 45-45 at times. The contest is strictly about the 10 to 20% in the middle. And the only reason that those people in the middle don't know who they're for is that they either are not very informed, don't really have solid principles, but they, they, they still feel as though they need to vote out of habit or that you know they've been told that good citizens vote. So the contest is – I mean the, the campaigns are aimed at the least educated, the most ignorant people because those are the people in the middle who haven't made up their minds. Yeah, and that's something that you're, you're never going to hear from an active political consultant. Um, I was a little more free in saying it than I probably should have, but yeah, the, 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 the sane ones don't say it. The ones that want to keep their job, so to speak. Exactly. Uh, oh, I just try that. not to let your, your candidates hear it. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, here, where, where I'm located here in Western Ohio, we, I've kind of, uh, you know, I try not to pay too much attention to all the, the political, the local political campaigns and so forth. But the floods of signs, highway signs and yard signs and so forth, it's really hard to to just function and not see all that, you know, the pollution that's everywhere around you with all the noise of the politics. But it's a funny thing to me. There's a a particular person um, who continually runs for office in this area and never, ever wins. And yet uh, now her husband is uh, heavily involved in the Republican Party, and he actually does get elected pretty frequently to a local office. But she runs and runs and runs for offices that she has no chance for. Every time there's an election, she's out there. She's got a lot of money behind her. She's got a lot of signs. She never wins. And now you would think that if the point is to win, you know, if we believe the story about politics, then if the point is to win... Why would the party just keep running somebody who is not capable of winning? And where does all this money come from? And what you know? And and what does she uh, what does she do when she's not running for politics? You know, and I'm not speaking specifically to that one person. I think I suspect there are professional um, people who do that uh, in other areas as well. Well. She sounds like one of those people who just runs for office for ego's sake. I, I don't. I don't know for sure. I don't know what the situation is. Maybe she sees herself as the savior of the world, or she thinks God has told her to run, or something like that. I've heard all sorts of crazy things. So I, I don't know specifically with her, but um, she might just have money and like to get attention and see her names on sign. I, I, I don't, w- without knowing the specifics, it's hard to say. You, you would be shocked at the reasons that people run for offices though. One of the first questions that I asked every candidate when I would first talk to the person in our preliminary meeting, I would say, why are you running? And I would get some of the oddest stories. A few of them would, would tell me true believer answers, but most of them, would tell me reasons that basically could be categorized as some form of ego or other. Yeah, well, that goes to, uh, I can't remember who I heard say it first, but, um, but I believe it was somebody, I believe it was J.R.R. Tolkien that said, or maybe, uh, uh, maybe Mark Twain that said, uh, anybody who would, would run for an office 
anybody who would actually try to do that is probably somebody that shouldn't be allowed to be or shouldn't shouldn't be in that office. Right. I, I don't I don't remember who said that either, but it's it's absolutely the truth. I can say honestly, and I, and I wouldn't be specific about which people these are, of course, but of of the clients I had, there were very, very few who I believed in. When I, when I first started working in the business, my thought was, I'm going to be able to, to work for libertarians and libertarian-leaning people, and we're going to be able to change things. And pretty soon you find out, well, do you want to eat or do you want to – you know? I mean, in order – before long, you just realize you're, you're, you're working for whoever is willing to pay you. And that's where the that's where the whole thing came from about being a prostitute, because that's what I ended up feeling like. If you give me your money, I'll help you get elected. And I, I think the more, you know, uh, with you, you came to a point of, of the, you know, the morality of it. Uh, it didn't feel comfortable and you didn't like it. But I think a lot of people just callous over that. And uh, especially, you know, if they're really rolling in money and really being successful with campaigns and, and their own ego is getting fluffed out of the out of this whole process, you know, it's really easy to set aside that little moral twinge mm -hmm. and uh, just keep pursuing it. Well, my experience is that the people who are best able to do that are those who don't really – who haven't really examined their core principles very, very deeply. Um, the people who simply believe the fairy tales that they were taught in school about the way the system works and so forth. And um, if, if you still believe that stuff and you don't bother thinking more deeply, you can convince yourself that you're doing something right and good. Uh, keeping that in mind, we're going to break for commercial here, and we'll be back in about 60 seconds. Admit it. You hate shopping for Christmas. You do. It's a hassle coupled with a burden, mechanically checking off friends, relatives, and coworkers from your list. You're probably not even religious, but if you are, is buying your cousin some little made-in-China piece of plastic really celebrating the birth of your Savior? This holiday season, why buy gifts for friends and relatives? Most of them are status anyway. You should send that money to the Freedom Fiends instead. The Freedom Fiends will use your money to help spread education of horizontal liberation throughout the world. If you want to help provide inoculation from indoctrination, go to freedomfiends.com and click on the spinning coin on any post to send your money to the Fiends instead. Because buying crap for unappreciative statist relatives won't get your name on the golden floppy disk of redemption. And if you must shop for Christmas, please do it through the Freedom Fiends Amazon link over on the right side of freedomfiends.com. It won't cost you anything extra, and Amazon will save you the danger of holiday drive-by stabbings at your local mall. Amazon pretty much sells everything you can buy on this earth, except for guns and weed. But they do sell the DVD, Guns and Weed, The Road to Freedom, so get that for your gun-hating stoner brother or neocon gun-nut dad. They'll thank you for it. That's freedomfiends.com. Thanks for sticking with me through the break. This is Ben Stone with BadQuaker.com podcast. And with me is David McElroy, a writer and filmmaker. 
And um, we were talking uh, about his uh, job that he described as a recovering political pro- – well, his former job as a, a political prostitute or more more accurately a political consultant. And um, I, I talked to uh, a friend of mine who was an author not long ago that called himself a recovering Republican. And um, it's it's kind of that's kind of the path that you had described there that you had gone from being the the standard conservative Republican through the process of becoming a libertarian, and then uh, what some people didn't go through is you thought well maybe we can go in and change the body of the Republican Party and and you know maybe have an influence by using that monster that already exists. Mm-hmm. But um, but you kind of moved away from that eventually, right? Exactly, because it it it's not going to work. You know, I have to tell you on that on that particular subject, one of the one of the things that I have gotten the most flack from people about something that I wrote this year, a couple of times on my website, I wrote articles about why it was impossible for Ron Paul or for any other libertarian, for that matter, to win, and people just thought I was horrible because I was pointing out the truth. I, I, lo- I love my, my politically minded or politically involved libertarian friends. They're great people. I, I was once in their shoes. But, but a lot of them think that I'm, I'm doing something bad by explaining the reality of why a libertarian isn't going to win. Most people do not believe what we believe. And they have this fantasy that if they will simply state our wonderful, logical, libertarian positions, that people will, scales will magically fall from eyes and people will start voting for Ron Paul. And it's not going to happen now. It's not going to happen later. People want a big government. Even if they say they want a small government, they want what they call a small government, which is one that gives them what they want. Boy, I don't know how many times I've said that using slightly different words, but I, you know, and and the funny thing is too, you get these people who are so angry at you that they they immediately accuse you of hating Ron Paul or of disliking right, Ron right. Paul. And I've always liked Ron Paul's message. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I thought he's a great guy. I have nothing against him. It's just that uh, realistically, uh, you know, I voted for him in '88. I went down and registered as a Republican in 2008. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and even in doing that, I thought, this is uh, this is really a serious waste of my time. Right. He he has absolutely no chance. They're not going to let him win. And, and that's really what it is. They're not going to let him. And it wasn't a personal against Ron Paul. It was that there's an establishment, and they they all uh, play this game, and they all control all the rules, and they're not going to let you play. Well, I would say two things about that. Um, I, I would say. Well, let me think how to split this into two categories. First, as I said a minute ago, the majority of people do not agree with us, period. I, that, I mean, full stop. They don't agree with us. They don't want what we want. So even if the system were completely fair, even if party establishments had no control over their rules, he still wouldn't win. But on top of the fact that that people, the vast majority, don't want what we want – Party establishments control things as they always have, and it's it's not necessarily that party establishments hate Ron Paul or, or libertarians. 
they just think Ron Paul and libertarians are a bunch of freaky weirdos who they don't want to be associated with. That's true. But they will you, – you, know, you know, the way a lot of, of Ron Paul fans were complaining about how the rules were changed at the convention and so forth, a lot of my friends believed, well, this is done just because they wanted to stop Ron Paul. No, this stuff happens – Every time. It happens at just about every convention. By the time the convention gets here, it's pretty clear these days, or it, it's, it's always clear these days who the nominee is going to be. And so by that point, the establishment simply wants a nice, clean PR event for the candidate who's going to win. And so they are going to use their power to modify the rules however they want to, to shut you up. It's not because they're scared of libertarians. It's not because they're scared of you. It's not because they're scared of Ron Paul. It's simply because they want to construct the best image that they can for their candidate, the one who obviously is already going to win. So just on a theoretical basis, let's say Rudy Giuliani had still been a serious contender by the uh, convention, but you know, but the real, the obvious, uh, the obvious direction was going to go to uh, to Mitt Romney. They would have done the same thing to Rudy Giuliani that they did to Ron Paul or anybody else. Because once you get to the convention, they want a unified right. uh, image in front of the public. The only thing that I would say different about that, Rudy Giuliani is enough a part of the system that he would have the sense to shut up and end his campaign and and throw the support to the other person. If you're going to be a part of that system, that's the game you need to play. I think that was probably part of the shock of some of the of the you know hardcore Republicans as to why why do these crazy Ron Paul people keep pushing they have no chance. Right. You you're absolutely right. When they looked at the Ron Paul people, particularly at that late stage, they just saw a bunch of, of crazy people who had absolutely no chance of winning. And to, to them, they were just crazy people who were sabotaging the, the chances of their nominee. Yeah, um, that's actually I, I can think of one particular Republican that's very, that I that I'm very cl- that I know exactly what was he was thinking, and that was his opinion. It was like, well, you guys must be for Obama in order to right. to do this, you know, this horrible thing to the Republican Party. Right, because if you're in the mainstream, your thinking is completely binary. If you're not if you're not on the side of whatever is best for for us for our group at this point, you obviously are for the other people. It's a total zero sum game to them. If um, and we might have already covered this a little bit, but I wanted to throw this question if you at you if you um, if you could tell uh, the listeners something about the whole political campaign process that you think would surprise them. Um, would you have anything, you know, further even, even than what we've gone, but would you have anything that would, that you think would surprise people? Yeah, there are a lot of things that would surprise people. I work in, or I worked in state and local campaigns. I didn't work at the presidential level, but I think it's actually more interesting at that level because you, you encounter a, a much wider diversity of, of people and a lot of people who don't necessarily know as much about what they're doing. It, it, to me, it was much more interesting. But anyway, 
Um, okay, I'll, I'll just pull an example out of the air that would make most people say, does that really happen? There's a practice that doesn't even have a name as far as I know that involves cash. Um, it typically uh, involves cash payments to um, – I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to get into the ethnic part of it, but let's just say that that it involves cash payments to uh, uh, to pastors at churches to deliver certain votes that they would not otherwise be so inclined to deliver. These candidates at times, and I'm not saying that it happens every time, but I know for a fact that it happens at times. I know of times when candidates will take cash or, or their representatives will take cash to a particular pastor and the the, the cash is cut in half. Um, I'm talking about the bills. All of the bills are cut right down the middle and I'll keep this half of the stack. You keep that half of the stack. And if I win, you get the other half of the stack. Now, as long as you have two sides of a bill, you can take it to your bank and deposit it. If you only have half, it doesn't do you any good. So this is to give to give the people, I mean, the, the people who you're essentially, I'm not going to quite call it bribing, but it's, it's sort of a bribe. You're giving them what's called walking around money, and, and you're doing it in a way that if the candidate loses, he keeps his half of the money, and the money is just destroyed. But if you win, he gets the rest of the money, and as a result, he has an incentive to deliver his parishioners for the candidate is being paid to deliver for. I think that would amaze a lot of people, um, but I, but I think it probably happens with a stunning regularity. I honestly can't say how often it happens. I, I just know that it does happen from time to time. And it's really kind of sad that people, you know, get together and they they have their worship services and they believe that this person has their best interest and they believe that this person is leading them when in all actuality the person is just, uh, you know, for hire, uh, basically just basically just for hire to whoever can can cough up the money. Unfortunately, that does happen. That's more likely to happen in um, in nonpartisan races, uh, city council, you know, local type races. When party ID matters, it's really hard to get people not to vote for the party that you expect them to vote for. Another thing that would surprise people is how frequently candidates take money from groups and industries who they rail against. For instance, here in Alabama, the Republicans all rail against gambling. I mean, gambling is the big evil, and there's a lot of controversy about how much gambling the state is going to allow. We don't have a lottery here. We have some dog tracks, um, electronic bingo, which which the state claims is slot machines. That's a big controversy. But uh, some of the gambling interests give money to some of these Republican candidates, legislative candidates, I, I know for sure, but they don't, it's not legally, it's, they just hand them stacks of cash. So I know that this happens. I, I couldn't prove it, um, 
I mean, I, I, I like, you know, if, if, if an attorney wanted to come in here and get me to prove it, I couldn't prove anything. So I'm safe there, but I know it happens and I can't be too specific about why I know, but it definitely happens. People take money from people who they claim are the devil incarnate at times. And now, and without, um, you know, without absolute positive proof, we can then assume that the same thing pretty much, you know, maybe on a different scale, but the same thing in, in one version or another is happening with the, uh, you know, the gun lobbies and the anti-gun voters and the, and the anti-gun lobbies and the gun voters and the same with abortion and the same with pharmaceuticals and the same with, you know, uh, uh, farming interests and Monsanto and I mean, it just echoes through every single layer like that. Yeah, the more financial incentive there is for somebody, uh, the, the more money is going to change hands. For instance, pharmaceuticals, farming, things of that nature. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that there's a lot of money going to people who would pretend not to like those people. Um, with issues such as abortion, there's probably not as much money as, as, as there would be in those other industries because there's not as much of a financial incentive for somebody to oppose or favor abortion. Yeah, that's more of a uh, – uh, but, but it's such a hot point uh, to some people that I, I'm sure that there's uh, you know big-time donors in both directions. I'm just assuming that. But yeah, it's uh, – you know, if you just echo that upwards – um, the, you know, and then you think about, well, it's perfectly legal to hire for a, let's just say a pharmaceutical company. It's perfectly legal for them to hire a politician to give a speech on a cruise ship. Right. And, and then of course all expenses are paid and, and, and that's not necessarily considered a cash payment. There's a phrase for it that I, it escapes me at the moment, but, uh, but that happens with regularity. Right. The, the thing about it is there's more. If you are willing to play the political game, and if you don't care whose interests you are serving, and if you're a smart person, quote unquote, who can get in with the right people, you can make a lot of money. I mean, personally, some of it over the table, some of it under the table. And that's really comical, too, because if you think about it, these are the same people that tell us that we should all be honest and we should all always work above the table and never hire people. under the table and never hire people who are, you know, maybe illegal aliens or don't have the proper paperwork. And we should always make sure that all of our taxes are paid. And yet how much of, of their, uh, how much of their economy is actually sort of, uh, uh, black market or possibly even like agorism as, as far as trade-offs and so forth. Quite a bit on a local level. And, and, and of course some campaigns are not like that. I've worked for some who were absolutely squeaky clean. We do everything by the books. Um, and I've worked for others that, you know, they're not so squeaky clean. So it, it, it really just varies. I remember an, a thing that um, I, I can't remember. I think it was somebody from Reason that did the thing um, uh, where where they went through and and showed everything that all the paperwork that had to be filed just to run for some. I can't remember what the office was now, but if you didn't know uh, the path, if you didn't know all of what had to be done. Right then it's just mind-boggling the amount of paperwork that has to be filed, who you have to notify, what kind of accounts you have to set up, and how, you know what kind of uh, – all the procedure is uh, an, uh, a labyrinth 
that very few people know the secrets of how to maneuver it. Right. I never had to deal with that sort of stuff, but I do know that the best campaigns will will have both a lawyer and an accounting firm working with them. They would pretty much have to uh, mm-hmm. just just to you know for self defense, if nothing else, sure. because if the other candidate realizes that they've got a weakness in that area, sure. Uh, well, we've got a couple more minutes left in this segment before we break for the next commercial. Um, I, I was kind of, you know, in all the events here recently, I've I've kind of stayed quiet about the, you know, with the uh, shooting of the innocent children and Obama's uh, tearful uh, discussion of it and everything. I, I did mention it on one podcast that I was on, but we passed by it a little bit. But you had an article over on your website that is worth reading, and I'll be sure and put a link to it. Um, that you know, it's just it's difficult to watch this guy be emotional about the horrible events, and then realize that. Um, that he does that for a living. He he murders people for a living. Right. It, it, it bugs me. Um, what I said in the article is that it takes a special kind of hypocrite to cry tears of, of, of pain over 20 innocent dead children when you have the power to stop children being killed on the other side of the world. The difference being, of course— those aren't Americans, and to most Americans, sadly, foreign lives, especially non-white lives, are not worth what our lives are. And number two, because there's, it's so far away, most people here can close their eyes and pretend that it doesn't happen. That bothers me. I don't care if you're a Republican, Democrat, whatever. If you want to argue that it is okay if a few people die— you know, especially in the numbers that that have been dying in in the drone strikes in Pakistan, you're a cold and callous person. So don't tell me that it matters when a few children die. The reality is, it's horrible when twenty children die. It's also horrible when twenty or a hundred or two hundred or whatever Pakistani children die. It's it's really you know it's going back to what you were talking about how. The, the vast majority of people just don't think the way that we think. And I think it affects that aspect of the argument as well. You know, there are so many people that you can – this is so obvious to people like us. And yet we, we have to struggle to get someone else to understand that the murdering of a child is the murdering of a child, whether it happens in the U.S. or whether it happens someplace else. Right. It, it's still – when you slaughter someone like that – it's the same thing. One, ten, fifty, a hundred. You can't. You can't just say it's 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 terrible murder here, but it's just foreign policy there. You cannot do this and be uh, a moral and and intellectually honest person. One of the reasons that this happens, though, and 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 this is something that a lot of people don't understand. And this goes back to something that you were saying a minute ago about how can how can something so obvious to us not be clear to other people? It's it's all about cognitive dissonance. I read a fascinating book four or five years ago that changed the way I looked at a lot of things like this. Uh, it's called Mistakes Were Made, but Not by Me. It's a book that I would strongly recommend to people. It's 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 a very accessible psychology book. 
and it discusses what the brain does when it encounters two different two different facts or pieces of information that are contradictory. If you are presented something that contradicts something you already believe, that creates a, a little minor form of pain in your mind because of cognitive dissonance. There, there's a level of both of these can't be true. And if you already believe that, that, that one thing is absolutely true and you're presented with something that is not as important but you're told it's true, you are going to somehow find a way to reject the second piece of information because you need to, you need to be consistent with what you already believe. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Uh, we're going to go ahead and break here, and uh, when we get back on the other side of the break, we're going to pick this right back up on the same topic. Stick with us. You know, author Taryn P. Lupo has a new novel out called One Nation Under Blood. When a rejuvenative blood technology is developed that pits the young against the old, the government must take firm steps to address the war of supply and demand brewing across generational lines. Blood is not the only thing bought and sold in this dystopian tale of technology, economics, and independence. Vampires are now very real, but we never expected them to wear our grandmother's best Sunday dress. Hey folks, it's Ben with a special announcement. This is for Thursday, December 20th, and for the next 24 hours, I got a, I got a uh, email from Taryn Lupo, and I'm just going to read the email to you. It says, uh, new, my romantic novella is free for the next 24 hours, so pick one up. If it ain't got that swing, that's the title of the, uh, of the uh, novella. If it ain't got that swing. So get over to badquaker.com if you're within the 24 hours around uh, December 20th, 2012. Get over to badquaker.com. There will be a link on today's show notes. Hit that link and pick up that free book from Taryn Lupo. Uh, I'm just going to read the little intro here. It says, uh, due to the strong Jewish and black origins of swing and, and uh, jazz music, both were outlawed in Hitler's Germany. Simply owning the record could get one sent off to be re-educated or worse. When a Jewish swing kid falls in love with the daughter of a Nazi officer, he risks everything just for the chance to win her heart. This novella tells the backstory of Murray Solomon from One Nation Under Blood, part, uh, part one of the series. So if you've already read One Nation Under Blood... This is, uh, this is a little bit of background information for you for the story. So get over to badquaker.com, hit that link, and pick up that uh, free uh, book from um, uh, Taryn Lupo. Thank you very much. Thanks, uh, thanks for sticking with me through the break. And Ben Stone on badquaker.com with David McElroy. Um, let's pick right back up on what you were talking about there. What was the name of that book again? It's called Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. Um, it came out four or five years ago, and it's something that it, it changed the way I saw the world in a lot of respects. Uh, I was just going to see if I could give you the uh, yeah the uh, the authors are Carol Tavris T A V R I S and Elliot Aronson. I guess that's the way you say the name A R O N S O N. And um, this this book they're they're, they're both clinical psychologists, and they explain why two people can see identical things but believe 
radically different things about it. They have chapters that explain how this happens with, with the police, how this happens in romantic relationships, how it happens politically. It's a fascinating book, and it will change the way you look at the world. Because most of the time, if we if we experience something and somebody else experiences the same thing, but we say A happened and that person says B happened, we normally think either that person is lying or that person is an idiot. And frequently it's none of the above. They simply all came to an event with a different set of assumptions than we did, a different set of beliefs. And as a result, their minds processed what they saw in different ways and unconsciously rejected things that did not um, go along with what they already thought was true. This is a real problem in – you mentioned uh, police there. This is a real problem in uh, law enforcement with eyewitnesses because you will often have eye, eyewitnesses looking right at the same situation happening. Exactly. And they have no motivation to lie one way or the other because they're separate from the, you know, from the key characters involved, and they will give opposing uh, views of what took place. Right. You can. Th- there's been plenty of of uh, very good clinical uh, psychological research that shows that you can you can change people's memories by. By priming them, and well, that's not that's not priming. So oh, I'm not going to call it that. But you can change what people believe they remember by certain cues that you give them, and before they know it, memories that you have given to them, they absolutely believe are what they saw. Yeah, and we're not talking about hypnotism or drugs or any no, kind of no, no, secret no. CIA anything. This is just the the way humans behave. Exactly. Um, and and this is one of the reasons why I believe so strongly that we are not ever all going to agree. People, people see the world in radically different ways. Not everybody and not even a majority is ever going to agree with me. I have accepted that, and I'm a lot happier now that I've accepted that because I don't feel the need anymore to try to get people to believe what I believe. I know I can't change their minds. Yeah, I can't remember now. You know, I quote this pretty frequently, and you would think that I would commit it to mind, but I can't remember now if it was Frank Charteroff or one of the other big uh, libertarian big hitters in the 60s. That uh, essentially he said that, um, you know, he, he, he didn't teach to try to convince libertarians. He taught in order to discover libertarians because, right. um, you know, if you if you go, it's kind of like what you just said. If you go into it thinking you're going to, you know, you're going to evangelize and you're going to win everybody's hearts and you're going to convince them with logic and reason and morality. And then in a, in a way you're setting yourself up for some real pain. You absolutely are. You're going to come across as the equivalent of a used car salesman, and nobody is much going to like you. Um, the few you're going to point to the few people who end up agreeing with you and saying, "See, my my conversion methodology works." In reality, you're going to find a few people to whom the ideas make sense. You're not really changing their minds. You're simply, as you said in your example, you're simply discovering those people. With what I do right now, with what I write on my website, with with the book that I'm writing right now, and with all of the things that I intend to do in the future, 
I am not looking to change anybody's mind. I cannot change your mind. I can't change anybody's mind. I can barely, you know, control what I think. All I'm interested in doing is finding people for whom what I believe makes sense. And I'd like to try to gather as many of those people as I can and say, hey, how can we, believing what we believe about the world, how can we live the lives that we want to live without having to convince other people? That's what I'm after. Yeah, uh, I would agree with that 100%. Uh, Also, for me at least, um, you know, these things are rolling around in my mind and – and if I, whether it's talking to the microphone here or whether I'm writing something out and, and making an article or whatever, by, by actually saying it or by writing it out and by working it out, uh, I, I actually clarify what I see and what I understand myself. Uh-huh. Whereas if I had just, you know, like said, all right, well, fine, I'm just going to go out to the garden and, and, uh, you know, grow potatoes. Right. Um, then I never would have come to the point of, con- of the conclusions that I've come to because I never would have been forced to work it all out with a microphone or 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 you know a website in front of you where people are reading what you're saying. Uh, you get caught sometimes being wrong. And <laughs> no, <laughs> surely not. And, and it's a really a wonderful thing because then you can step back and go, hey. Look at this! I, I've got a new little jewel here that uh, right. that I can refine myself with. Right. I say that if I ever am absolutely consistent right now with what I said four or five years ago, I've probably become stale, um, and I'm not being honest, and I'm not growing, and I'm not changing. So I'm constantly finding that I'm wrong about things, and that's fine. I am going to say what I believe today as strongly as I know how. But I'm very well aware of the fact that some of what I believe is wrong. And as I figure out which bits and pieces are wrong, I'm going to change. And a lot of people, for a lot of people, that is a very scary idea. I I think that's another thing that sets, uh, as far as uh, the people leaning toward anarcho-capitalism and so forth, I think that's another thing that sets us apart, is our driving desire to understand the truth is greater than our... um, you know, our ego or our desire to uh, sit comfortably and believe the same little pocket of things. Absolutely, because it, I, I think that it generally takes a certain type of personality that is not as concerned with approval, not as concerned with conformity, not as concerned with all of those sorts of things to even be open to these ideas. Um, because. If you end up going out and calling yourself an anarchist or some form of an anarchist, you are saying to the world, I disagree with the vast majority of, of what civil society believes, and that's not something that most people are comfortable with. So you have, to have a certain, you have to have a certain level of intelligence to think it through in the first place, and in the second place, you have to have a certain personality that does not care and is more independent. And, you know, that that leads me to a point that a lot of other people overlook. They look at the fellow libertarians or anarchists around them, and they make the mistake of thinking that these people are representative of the broader population. And you know what, folks? We are not typical. (laughs) Very true. We're the weirdos. Let's be honest. Yeah, and there's uh, there's really nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's yeah. We uh, we're swimming in a different uh, in a different puddle. But if but if you are the weirdos, 
you have to realize that you have to recognize that and say, you know what? Other people are not going to want what I want. And I need to figure out how I can structure my life and how we as much as possible can structure the world around us so that we can have what we want. And hopefully everyone can have what he or she wants in a world where we don't all have to agree. Let me uh, take you in kind of a totally different direction, and I and I uh, I didn't give you any indication that I was going to throw this at you, so I, I apologize to. Oh no, for, you've for, heard about my jail time. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> no, I was going to say, um, can you? Because so many people um, within the within the, uh, I like to call it a, a liberty mission rather than a movement, because a movement has a lot of negative connotations that I'm not comfortable with. But um, within the, the people who think r- roughly like we do, whether it's still within the libertarian, minarchist type uh, mold or all the way to the ANCAP or wherever you are in between and all that, um, a lot of people hold out hope that within our lifetime we're going to see some kind of really uh, dramatic um, movement towards liberty and um, and I, and what, well, I won't pollute it with my opinion just yet, but what, what do you, what do you see in that realm as far as what might or, or what could happen in your lifetime or, or what you're really expecting? The phrase I have for what you're describing is fairy tale. Um, I, I just, I don't believe anything like that. I don't believe it's possible. I don't think it's going to happen. I think that things are going to continue to get worse. My, uh, my prediction and I'm not going to put a time frame on it, but my feeling is that we are headed toward economic and social collapse. I see this country breaking down, probably breaking apart into different pieces. I'm not saying that's going to happen in five months or five years. I don't know when it's going to happen. And when it starts happening, it might not happen you know, all at once. But, but I think that that's essentially what's going to happen. This government cannot sustain its debt. Right now, the rest of the world is is willing to go along with that because everybody else is in worse shape than we are, and we're still the world's reserve currency. Those things are not always going to be true, and we're going to reach the point at which people are not going to be willing to to borrow. Uh, I assume that the debt will be monetized, which will mean that inflation will, you know, go to the hyper level, and I think there will be some form of collapse. When that happens, the people who are prepared for it in some way are going to have a better chance of surviving. I don't don't have a good plan yet. I'm still trying to figure mine out, which is one of the reasons why I want to make connection with as many people who believe that this is what's going to happen. And I'm not talking about, you know, I want to get a bunch of preppers and dig, you know, dig tunnels beneath a mountain necessarily. I want to look at what the options are so that different ones of us can pursue what makes sense for us. For some of us, it might make sense to be in some other country where it might be safer. For some of us, it might be it might be safer to be in some rural area and have some enclave of our own there. There, there's so many possibilities, but without having other people who are also looking at this and trying to figure it out it's really hard just as an individual to know what the right thing to do is 
I would ha- I would have to agree with uh, with what you're saying there. I really look at this more as a generational thing. You know, empires come and go. Uh, people have been crying about the end of time for as long as they've understood the possibility of such a thing. Right. And um, and in reality, you know, history just goes at 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 the same time. History goes blindingly slow, and events happen really, really quick. Right. So just like you're saying there, a collapse could come next week or next month, and I wouldn't be shocked. But a collapse could also take 20, 50 years to slowly come about, you know. Exactly. Uh, and so I wouldn't be surprised one way or the other. But very much like what you were saying, um, well, the way I like to put it, today, as things exist right now, there is a market for government, uh, ty- uh, tyrannical government, there's a market for the concept of the state. Right. And, and as long as that market exists, as long as there's a demand, f- and there is a huge demand, uh, as long as that demand exists, then we as uh, you know, people who appreciate a market should understand that we're not going to we're not going to deprive uh, deprive the guy, the people of what they want. Uh, you can't you can't deny them something if the market wants it right and they they want a big government they want an intrusive government to give them the feelings of security exactly and it will when it collapses uh, as as we both think that it will in some form it will create a vacuum and certain politicians certain groups it's hard to say it's hard to predict exactly what's going to happen depending on the local circumstances different people are going to seize power in different places and it's very possible that 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 some groups and some individuals are going to use the opportunity to settle old scores Uh, you're going to see the rise of of all sorts of extremist movements whether it's Hispanic groups who want to cut off part of the country and go back and be a part of Mexico or it's black groups or it's some redneck whites who want their own little confederacy. I mean, there's there's just all sorts of possibilities. Some people are going to want to set up their own little fiefdoms. And when there is a a vacuum of power, people are going to start seizing power. It's going to be. Very, potentially, it's going to be a very ugly time, and it's only going to be a decent time for those who are prepared for it. And I would add to that that there's not there's not one secret way. You kind no. of referred to this a minute ago. There's not one secret answer as to how to prepare for these kind of things. It's really a very personal, right. uh, according to your strengths and weaknesses and your finances and resources. Right. I, for instance. There, there are, I know a lot of people who are moving to rural areas and they're building their own homes and living off the land, totally living off the grid, so forth. I'm sorry, I'm a city boy. I don't know how to do those things, and I'm not sure that it really is practical for me at this point in my life to completely change what I know how to do. You know, And, and so that is really not what I want for the people for whom – it makes sense. Hey, more power to you. I'm not trying to tell anybody what, what what the right way is. I'm just saying that we all need to cooperate in looking at the options and figuring out how we can all do things that play to our own strengths. Yeah, and very much like uh, any other f- uh, actual free market, you're going to have a lot of different um, 
uh, solutions that are, are not necessarily exclusive of each other or inclusive. They're, you're just going to, you know, different different answers right. are going to come up. You, you know, you're reminding me of something that is a real pet peeve of mine in the libertarian movement. And, and this really doesn't apply so much to the period of breakdown. But so many people I know believe that there is one true and holy way to be a libertarian or an anarchist, or there is one true way to set up society. There is one true and holy way to have a set of rules under which we live. And you know what? Honest people can disagree about some of those things. Some people want to live under some kind of little socialist setup. If they want to go have their little socialist city and if they want to have a million people who voluntarily join in their little socialist system, that's fine with me. I know a lot of libertarians who say everywhere has to operate under our rules because they're the right rules. The problem is everyone believes that his version of the rules are the right rules. What we should be striving for, in my view, is not a world in which everybody lives under the rules that I dictate. That's what, I mean, that's, that's what's gotten us into this problem right now. We should be striving for a world where different groups can set up their own cities, enclaves, whatever you want to call them, under their own rules, and people can voluntarily live under their rules, or they can say, you know what, these people are nuts, I want out of here. You've got me smiling ear to ear when you're saying that stuff. Well, that's good. I'm glad somebody understands. Most people look at me a little bit blankly and ask if I'm crazier than usual today. Now, I, I wanted to ask, you, you said you've got a, a book uh, in the works. When when you eventually get that done, uh, let me uh, just offer an, uh, an invitation to you. Just drop me a note or something, and you can definitely come on the, the podcast and talk about it. I would appreciate that. Um, it's, it's, it's actually a little broader than just politics. It's I am I am more interested now, even though I'm fascinated by politics, I'm fascinated by power and how we're going to structure society. I am more fascinated with how how we can live the kind of lives that we want to live. I think that we we, we we live in a country where we've become a bunch of zombies who are living lives according to what we believe other people have dictated for us. And, and, and this, and this is about that. And it's about the efforts that some people are making not to live that way anymore. The, the working title is searching for signs of real life in a zombie nation. If that gives you any indication. <laughs> that sounds like it's going to be good. I hope so. Any other films uh, in the near future? I have several scripts written. Don't really have the budget to make anything right now. I would love to get back into back into making some things. Let's put it this way. If you had told me when I finished We're the Government and You're Not that I would not have made anything at this point, I would have said, no, you're crazy. I definitely am going to make something. Because honestly, that was a... I, I, I like that little film. I really do. But it was very flawed. It had its problems. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really ready to do more things, but I just have not raised the money. So if there's anybody out there who's... A producer who likes raising money, let me know. I'd love to work with somebody who who uh, who knows how to raise money. I know how to spend money. I don't know how to raise it. 
I might uh, I might be able to connect you with somebody. Uh, Michael W. Dean, d- that did the uh, Guns and Weed, The Road to Freedom movie, is a good friend of mine, and uh, maybe we can get his attention. And uh, well, be uh, the, the only th- the only thing that that I would say is I am less interested. I'm less and less interested in things that are overtly political now. I like things that have an underlying you know, an underlying message, an underlying philosophy that represents what I believe. But the short that you've seen, as much as I love it, it's something that's preaching to the choir. It's just something that, you know, we enjoy it because it's funny and it pokes fun of people we don't like. But the truth of the matter is we, we have to, with, with, with the media that we make, if we want to be effective, we're going to have to produce things that speak in an entertaining way to an audience that does not want to be lectured at. And unfortunately, libertarians and anarchists have this terrible tendency to produce things with a person staring at the screen or staring at the camera and lecturing people. And we have to entertain people, and that's what I'd like to do. Well, David, I'd really like to thank you for coming on the show with me. And uh, like I mentioned, uh, I've got a wide open invitation for you. Anytime you want to get back on, uh, just let me know, and we will definitely get that done. Thanks, Ben. I've enjoyed it a lot. And folks, be sure and get over to badquaker.com where liberty is our mission. And thank you very much for listening today. 